Good, good evening. Welcome to our live broadcast. Sorry, just getting uh, getting used to this setup. So we are broadcasting live. teach a little bit of Dhamma and then answer questions. So the questions are being answered here. Let me see if I can see that. Here? Yes. At this website. So you can go there if you want to. But you have to sign up. And uh, it's really only for meditators. So if you're not actually meditating, it's maybe not interesting to you. We're not just answering idle questions from the internet. Unfortunately, that would take too much of our time. So, today's topic is a warrior. Hmm? But it was really good with analogies. Any good teacher is, you know. Any good teacher will... use analogies to describe things. I don't know, I mean it's one tool, maybe not any good teacher, but it is a, it is a useful tool. And the Buddha was, a, was a, of course a master of teaching in so many ways. So he often used the idea of a yodhajiyo Yoda. I wonder if Yoda comes from the word warrior. War. Fighter? What does Yoda mean? Yoda means... Let's see. Yeah, Yoda itself is a is a warrior, but Ajiwa is, is a li livelihood. So one who lives as is a professional warrior. Yoda is just maybe someone who is fighting. So fun fact, the word Yoda probably comes from the... Oh, I don't know actually. The Sanskrit probably wouldn't be Yoda. It's probably not a fun fact. Maybe it's just a fun delusion. The idea of a warrior, warrior is someone who is trained. And the Buddha said, well, you know, not all warriors are trained. The warrior isn't trained, though. Not likely to gain the favor of the king. Not likely to be seen as a hero. Right? You watch all these movies as kids, and some people watch them as adults, about warriors. There are warriors and then there are heroes. So possessing three factors, a warrior is worthy of a king. Have you seen as a king's warrior, like a knight of the round table or something like that?
What are the three factors? Well, a warrior has to be able to shoot long distances. Actually, it sounds more like we're talking about a, an archer here. But uh, it's important, you know. I mean, if you have to charge into battle, you've already put yourself in danger. So the ability to shoot things far away is a great skill in war. The ability to have range. The second one, one has to be a sharpshooter, has to have good aim. So when one aims at something like an apple on top of someone's head, they have to be able to hit the apple. Assuming that's not quite what the Buddha is, or what a warrior would have done. It's not about shooting apples, it's all about killing people. But it stands for a sharpshooter, someone who is able to hit the target, stay focused, mm -hmm. get to the point. And number three, one has to be able to, the warrior has to be able to, has to be able to cleave a great, a giant, let's put it like that, has to be able to cleave, to, to, to render Rend, what's the word? Split asunder. A, a giant, a great body. Mahato chakayasa padarita. Destroy, maybe not even cut, but has to pierce, has to be able to uh, penetrate. Huge. Sounds like we're talking about it, killing giants, really, or dragons, maybe. Something very huge. So not really a Dharma teaching, right? You think? Well, but uh, of course, this is merely a, a simile or an analogy, I guess. Because in the same way, Abiku. Someone who has seen the dangers of samsara. If they want to be worthy of respect, they want to actually be what the Buddha called a punyaketa, be worthy of people's support, people's praise, and to be a worthy individual, to just have some inner worth. What, what, what must one do? Well, a, a bhikkhu as well must be a sharpshooter, uh, a long-distance shooter, right? A sharpshooter and must be able to destroy a giant, pierce and penetrate a huge, massive body. Any guesses what these mean? Import. I mean, it's 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 actually these are actually three useful teachings, which is why I chose this one. This is, by the way, in Guttara Nikaya, Book of Threes, one thirty-three. So, what does it mean to be a long-distance shooter? It means that any form whatsoever, 
form being anything physical any physical aspect of experience whether it's something you see or you hear or you smell or you taste or you feel even anything you think about let's look at the Pali because it's quite quite poignant I think Yang kinci rupang adita nagata pachupanang. Whatever rupa in the past, in the future, or in the present. Ajatava bhidava. Internal or external. Whether it be the rupa in your own body or the rupa that you touch outside of your body. O ladikangwa sukumangwa. We were talking about this is actually. This might be the very quote that we were looking at in the Visuddhimagga today. It's an interesting question, is it? Sorry, I'm going to go find this quote that we just looked at. Here we are. It's almost. It starts the same, but it's not this quote. But we're just looking at this, looking at the various ways. What does it mean? What is internal rupa? What is external rupa? Olarika means coarse. Sukuma means subtle or fine refined hinawa panidhangwa inferior or superior yang dure santikewa near or far sabang rupang and this is this point is this kind of sutta is important to quote because it's common for meditators who haven't been well instructed to make a distinction between the coarse and the subtle. Actually, there's another tradition, and I won't mention it, but some of you might recognize it, that is very specific about focusing on more and more subtle sensations, more and more subtle experiences. And I'm not convinced that that is a useful thing to do. The Buddha was quite clear that court here, in, in many cases, coarse or refined, inferior or superior, has nothing to do with it. In fact, it seems to be part of what the Buddha called the Anubhyanjana, the Nimitta and the Anubhyanjana, the details and the particulars and the signs. Worrying about whether it's subtle or, or coarse doesn't have anything to do with reality. Why? Because Sabbang Rupang Ne Tang Mama Ne Sohamasmi Ne Someyata. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And these three are the three clingings that we've talked about. Diti, mana, tanha. The three, um, what Lumpo Chodok, this monk here, calls the uh, jnana gati dhamma, which uh, I'm not quite sure where he gets it from, but there are three, the three things that, that the Buddha often talked about as preventing us from seeing the truth. Three ways of clinging. You can cling through diti, through views, the view this is myself, you can cling through mana, the view that this I am, and you can cling, not the view, but the, the idea, 
and you can cling through craving, this is mine. These are expressions of those three things. Netang mama neso hamasmi nameso ata. Eva me tang yatavu tang samma panyaya pasati. Pasati means he sees. This is where we get the word vipassana from. He or she, this bhikkhu, sees these things as they are, yatabhuta, with right wisdom, samma panyaya. So how does one see that? This is what it means to be a sharp, uh, a long-range shooter. Long-range means everything. So the distinction here is that when you're practicing meditation, you begin to see things as not mine. First you break things down into what's really happening. So this food that I'm eating is not actually food, it's experiences. And those experiences are not mine. I can't control them. They arise based on causes and conditions and then they disappear. They are not, and it's not me and it's not I. I am not this. The whole eating is just a process of individual experiences, none of which are self or soul or mere mind you start to see that you there's no control there's no ownership and you start to let go you learn how to be just mindful how to be just present rather than trying to control and force things and cause suffering for yourself but um being a long-range shudra means you have to see this about everything. So eventually, through your practice, it comes to you that everything is like this, and you become convinced. It doesn't mean you have to experience all experiences. You start to get the point that experience itself, no matter what kind of experience, far, near, past, future, all that experience is not me, not mine, not self. And the same with Vedana, the same with feelings, pleasant, unpleasant. Whether they be fine or coarse, or inferior, superior, far or near. It's all also not self. Huh. I found a typo. That's important. Nesoha mas mas I have to change that. I found a typo in the electronic tipitaka, which is not a good thing to find. No, this is like, it's the equivalent of finding a typo in the Bible. Not a good thing. Fortunately, this, this version has, as great as it was that they digitalized it, they weren't as careful as they claimed to be. Sanya, not yakinti, and also sanya. So your recognition—it's also you can't control this. You can't stop yourself from recognizing. Oh, that's that person who I don't like. Or you see a spider. Well, anyway, it's not—it's not quite about control, but it, it comes as cause and conditions, and you can't keep or can't get rid of it. You can't remember things when you want them. Like it's not how it works. You learn how to be, be flexible and let things come and go on their own. Do not try to force things. Same with sankhara, all the mental formations. And same with vijnana. A 
that's what it means to be a long-range shooter when you get it when you see that this is the way of everything so what does it mean to be a sharp shooter to get to penetrate to get to the point a sharp shooter is one who has wisdom about the four noble truths so actually the first one really is getting at it but um, a, diff a different aspect of that is getting to the point and being able to see the Four Noble Truths. This is suffering. You see that everything, you start to see that samsara itself is its not happiness, it doesn't satisfy you. There's no peace in the wandering on and chasing after things. Ayang dukkha samudayo, this is the cause of suffering. Yatha bhutang pajanati, sees that as it is. So the cause of suffering is craving. In fact, you cling to it. So it's not actually that... This isn't actually a, des a des um, depressing teaching or anything. It's not that the world around us is, is actually the problem. The problem is that you cling to it. The problem is that it's worthless. It's not worth clinging to. It. So it is kind of pessimistic. But uh, nothing has the power to hurt you unless you cling to it unless you react to it. Ayang dukkha nirodho, this is the cessation of suffering. What's the cessation of suffering? The cessation of craving. When you stop craving, you let go. When you let go, you're free. When you're free, you can say, I'm free. Ayang dukkha nirodha ghamini patipada. So what is the path? You see what is the path. You enter into the path. Your mind becomes perfectly in tune with the way of mindfulness, the way of wisdom. This is how one is a sharpshooter. And how is one able, what does it mean to be able to penetrate the large body, the giant, you know, the great and massive body? Well, one pierces the great mass of suffering, mahantang avi, not of suffering, sort of ignorance. Mahantang avijja kandang padaliti. One pierces this great mass of ignorance. Ignorance. We're ignorant. And we don't understand the truth. We don't see the truth. We don't know so much, and it's right under our noses. And that's the core claim of Buddhism. That we're not doing something wrong or. or something to fix that we simply don't know the truth it's a very bold claim that all of our ambitions and desires are misguided none of them are actually based on rational thought and investigation none of them stand up to investigation or uh, observation when you look at them objectively you can't but let go of them, give them up. That's the claim in Buddhism. It's about piercing our ignorance. When you have no more ignorance, no more craving and no more suffering. So, good meditators are like good warriors. They have skills. They've trained. All of this is a, is a training. None of this comes... From thinking, none of it comes from wishing, from praying, from believing, from studying, from listening. 
It all comes from training. Just as a warrior. A warrior doesn't become a sharpshooter. This is why the Buddha uses this kind of language, because it's kind of like warrior training. I've said this recently, right? Boot camp. Meditation is boot camp for the mind. Just as you train your body to do all sorts of magical and magnificent things, we train our mind in great and magnificent, powerful things that give us the ability to conquer our demons and free ourselves from danger. So, that's the Dhamma for tonight. Now it's your turn. Give me some questions. Do we have questions? I gotta turn. I think I gotta turn Robin's audio on. Oh, it's on. So you're probably muted yourself. I don't hear you. No, oh, no. I am. Yes. Yes, we do have questions, Bante. Okay. Bante, can you clarify your views on the subconscious mind? You said the other night that Buddhism doesn't accept the idea of a subconscious mind. In the Western world, we often assume that thoughts arise in the mind as a result of a cause, and that cause is either some sort of self or soul, in the case of religion, or a subconscious mind in the case of psychology. So, if one, Buddhism rejects both the existence of a self, soul, and the existence of a subconscious, what then can cause thoughts to arise in the mind? Two, if I have a thought, two, but I'm not aware of... You're allowed two questions in one? Is that yes. fair? Yes. Right. <laughs> yes, if I if I have a thought but I'm not aware I'm thinking it as I'm thinking oh, it. Oh, well, can't can't we do them it? can't we do them one at a time? I'm still processing sure. the first one. Okay, so the first one then, if Buddhism rejects both the existence of a self soul and the existence of a subconscious, what then can cause the thoughts to arise in the mind? Well, the whole how how the system works isn't really addressed in Buddhism. Um, if I take a guess, because it's not really useful, uh, maybe there is no answer. There's no reason to think that there is, which is kind of odd for us, but there's no reason to think that there is an underlying mechanism by which things work nor is there any reason to concern ourselves with that. You see, this is where science is admittedly makes a mistake and it just tries to know stuff without thinking, is that useful to know? Right? But there's absolutely no reason to learn why things work the way they do. The re the, what's useful is learning how they work, and uh, well, actually, that's the only, that turns out to be the only important thing because once you really see how they work, you become free. We would also assume that once you know how they work, you know how to manipulate them would be important, but that turns out to not be important at all because once you see how they work, you let go and free you become free. Um, but um, one thing I can say that I think is is to the point here is that uh, thoughts are caused, can be caused by rupa. If I'm not mistaken, this is an orthodox view that 
that makes sense. You know, the brain and the physical world gives rise to thoughts. Requires, you know, it's not just random. It's not like a thought can pop up because two rocks touch each other or something. I don't believe in this panpsychism garbage. I really, I must be misunderstanding something because it just sounds ridiculous. This idea that every soul, every cell, or every atom could have consciousness or the potential for consciousness, it's a total misinterpretation of, you know, it's ridiculous. If you think consciousness is singular, so my body doesn't have two consciousnesses. Consciousness doesn't come like that, but uh, in within the stream of consciousness, um, there's a part to be played by the brain. I would say. I mean, don't know. I guess it's a bit uh, not fully formed how I would explain this or understand it. But some thoughts are going to be. At least, at least instigated by the physical, are going to be um, affected by the physical. Because a single thought has got to be made up of, well, no, a single thought would be made up of one, one series of consciousnesses. But um, the brain can affect that, I would say. But probably more to the point, and, and just to, to simplify it, we don't worry about what is causing things. You know, cause is more like, why are you thinking a certain thing? Well, you think a certain thing because you've given power to that idea, and it becomes habitual, and so on. You know, if you kill someone, you're going to think about killing, and you're going to feel guilty and all that. Why does the guilt arise? Well, because you killed someone. It's more cause and effect kind of Buddhism thing. Not, not a question of, well, how does that happen? Who cares? It's what happens. And it may be even more than who cares. It may be like it's not a part of reality. And there's no answer to that. The only answer would be a theory, which would just be... Con Oops. Did you get the second question? I just clicked on it. I did. If I have a thought that I'm not aware of as I'm thinking it, isn't it by definition a subconscious thought? Not necessarily. There are thoughts that are subtle. There are experiences that are subtle. Not every experience is fully formed. But you can't possibly have a thought that you're not aware of. That's not how reality works. Having a thought means being aware of the thought. What would it mean to have a thought that you're completely unaware of? And there's a third part. Um, my body can regulate its heart rate and temperature without me being aware I'm doing it. Is that not evidence that a subconscious mind exists? No, that's evidence that the body exists. But that's just still just conjecture, you know. Um, because you could look, you could also look at the world as a whole bunch of minds and all their karma, you know, creating a universe. So, your mind is, is, has its journey that's creating experience after experience, and all the many, infinite, you know, countless number of experiences that involve a single day even, 
um, they're all finely tuned with the you know, sort of cause and effect framework and so the idea that your body being able to regulate your heart rate well that's just conjecture on your part what you're you're making a conjecture or an extrapolation based on experiences but it's those experiences that are real when you feel your heart beating oh yeah my heart's still regulating but that's not true all that is oh now I'm feeling it now, we don't even know the next moment our heart could turn into a grapefruit for all we know right to say that your body is regulating the heart rate is just a conjecture it's a reasonable one and it's useful to think that way because doctors have to cut people open based on that but um, none of these things actually exist because remember existence in Buddhism is based on experience Hello Bhante before I discovered your channel I read a booklet about meditation in which it stated that it is beneficial but not necessary for vipassana meditation to practice samatha meditation first not to reach a certain jhana but to gain a good level of concentration for now I am patiently practicing vipassana but I wonder if a few sessions of samatha meditation would be worthwhile before I continue to develop more insight what would you say in regards to that? thank you well the Goenka tradition believes that I'm a little bit confused I, I, I it doesn't really seem reasonable to me I would say if you're not going to gain jhana sure why not yeah any meditation is good no I shouldn't be so critical but it's certainly not orthodox I mean the orthodox would be if you're going to practice samatha you got to go all the way to jhana that's what it's for and then you practice vipassana even based on the jhana factors but fine okay yeah any meditation is good just like giving is good doesn't mean you should waste all your time giving or whatever. The core is vipassana. It's, it's not actually vipassana. The core is satipatthana, which leads to vipassana. The core is mindfulness on based on the reality, based on experience, not based on the concept. See, what you're talking about, samatha, you mean what you what you mean? If let's call a spade a spade, you mean focusing your attention on something that doesn't even exist, a concept. When you focus your mind on a concept, what good could it possibly be towards understanding reality? Is it good? Yeah, good. Good because you gain concentration, your mind becomes calm. That's a great power. You can later then apply that to vipassana. But in and of itself, it's... A, you could maybe say it's like punching a punching bag. It doesn't actually do you any good, but you get stronger so that you can then go out and punch real things when I do meditation according to your tradition I realize the part of the mind that is the part of the mind that is doing the noting comes from the same part of the mind that does the thinking planning craving etc and for that potentially causes suffering noting is also a part of the six senses if this is true, why the noting potentially leads to nibbana compared to not noting or meditating? I feel it's all part of the same system, but it's just a different kind of wiring on the same level. My apologies for overthinking this. I must say that the meditation t tradition you teach helped me a lot 
to cope and attain great understanding about how the mind works. And for that, I have a better life. But when the goal is Nibbana, my real question is, if it's all the same system, it must be next to impossible to think a system can understand and realize its own system. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Well, it can, though. I mean, if you ask yourself, I mean, you're just intellectualizing, so probably better just to say thinking, thinking, but um, the system can understand itself. Understanding can arise. Yes, it's part, it's just another type of, of activity, of course. It just happens to be a good activity that helps you see, see clearly. Putting yourself at the base of the experience allows you to see what you're doing. I mean, it is a kind of magical that we're able to know, oh, now I'm doing this, you know, that we're able to learn about ourselves. But we are. Not directly. You can't actually observe your own mind, but you're, you're kind of reflecting. You're saying, oh, that was that. You know? Which is kind of magical. The ability to actually know what you just did it's kind of magical, right? Because if these were billiard balls, this is one experience, this is the next experience, how could this experience know what just happened there? So it's obviously not billiard balls. We're not dealing with discrete instances exactly. There's something, something a little bit different. Anyway, if it helps, keep doing it. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, your, 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 your argument is understandable but um, it doesn't it just doesn't hold up in reality because reality is doing this allows you to uh, understand the system so your criticism is not valid if you you know through doesn't stand up to investigation Monte, I've watched all your videos on the Dhammapada with great interest. I have a couple of questions and would appreciate an answer. Some of the suttas and stories behind them, such as when the Buddha sits and sends out his mind to see who in the world would most benefit from his teachings, and he sees people like Jambuka from stories from the story behind verse 70, for example. It seems to me the people that received spiritual help from the Buddha were either people from India or beings in other realms, but apparently there are no people from other civilizations of the time, like the Romans or Greeks or Egyptians, etc., which I assume also needed spiritual guidance. Is there any mention in the Chapitika of Buddha going out and helping anyone outside of the Indian subcontinent or other realms? Also, the past lives of the characters all seem to have Indian roots when in the when in the human realm. So does that imply that our past lives sort of localized to one particular area when born as humans? Thanks. I think it may indicate that those stories are a little bit flawed. I mean, I'm not convinced that the stories are perfectly accurate. And I know that some Buddhists, Orthodox Buddhists would not be happy to hear me say that, but um, they're really great stories, they're useful stories, and I want to believe most of them generally having happened, but um, there are 
there are a lot of stories, like the Jataka is probably a better source for this. The Jataka is even, probably even more reliable, I would say. If you compare the Jataka, there are three sets of, big sets of stories that we have. There are the Vinaya stories, surprisingly, people don't realize that the Vinaya, the Vinaya, the book of discipline, all the rules, is actually full of stories. There are the Vinaya stories, and there are the Jataka stories, and then there are the Dhammapada stories. There are other stories. There are the Udana stories and the Itihuttaka story. There are the um, Terigata, Teragata stories. There are the Charita, Buddha Charita stories, the Apadana stories, lots of stories all over the place. Many of them are just copied, but the three big ones are these three. The Vinaya stories are the, the least sort of um, fantastical the most down to earth. The Jataka are a little bit more fantastical, like they have, they seem to have been embellished, potentially embellished. And the Dhammapada are definitely embellished, I, mean, I, I think. Mahasi Sayada even says it, I think. Um, because you get the same story, sometimes the same story is in all three of them. Except the Vinaya version is reasonable and understandable. The Jataka is a little bit out there and the Dhammapada is way out there. Same story. Um, but the Jataka verses, there are kingdoms that aren't in India. A lot of them happened in India. Like talking about past, past stories of the past lives. But there are kingdoms that the Buddha just says there was a kingdom named this. Um, although that's in the past, so you might say, well, but still, it's it's clear that it's not India, not not in that sense, not not as it's known as it was known in the time of the Buddha. And I think there are other there are other examples of talking about other civilizations. The question of whether the Buddha ever went to teach, like the Sri Lankans believe he went to Sri Lanka, maybe he did. It's not actually in the Tipitaka. The other thing I'd probably guess is that the people who compiled these, um, you know, because it's we're talking about over hundreds of years, that the ones they remembered and the ones they kept and the ones that were understandable to them were the ones about their own society, because they never met these other people. And so they may have just been all assimilated to India. Um, but, you know, maybe the, I mean, the Buddha maybe didn't go out of India. So that's what he was always talking about. So maybe he didn't go out of India. As far as... Ah, yes. Yeah, so the past lives... So no, the past lives don't all seem to be Indian in my, in my mind. Although you could argue, maybe it's true. But again, your, the stories were retold and retold and remembered and, and kind of seemed to have been re interpreted or, or you know um, recalled from memory memory or, or expanded from brief and, and basic outline memories um, by Indian people so they may have re-expanded them based on India but regardless this, the stories may very well just be flawed um, and so the answer, to, the re real important answer is, 
no, you know, rebirth is. Well, you know, rebirth could be localized for someone who's who's very fixated on India because that's where they've lived. They're probably going to be reborn in India. But uh, certainly, someone could be reborn in another place. But I guess you could say, you know, being reborn in another country would probably be rare in that time because very little contact with other countries. And so people were all very much habitually associated with their own countries. Anyway, a little bit speculative, honestly. Ante, the stories in the Winnie, are those the stories of how the rules came to be? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but it's not even just the rules. There's lots of stories about disciplinary transactions. And, you know, there's the whole... Remember you asked about the seven uh, seven weeks that the Buddha spent under the Bodhi, after the Bodhi tree. That's in the Vinaya. So it starts there because it wants to tell how the Vinaya came about. So it goes all the way back to how the Buddha became enlightened. And from that point, how did the Vinaya come about? So that, is that fairly useful for lay people to read? Not really. I mean, yeah, well that part actually, right, the stuff about enlightenment. I don't know. I, uh, before you read that, I would read the Jatakas probably. Jatakas probably more, if you're just looking for stories anyway. Because in neither of them is there really any great um, teaching. This way, the you know, sutta's the best, especially for people who have limited time to study all the intricacies of, of Buddhism. You study the Sutta Pitaka, there's so much there. As, as we can see from our study, even the Anguttara Nikaya is full of teaching. Okay, thank you, Bhante. How does the schedule work? I clicked on the 2200 UTC Sunday option but now I'm thinking I probably should have told you that before. Well, I got a call from two people this evening at the same time, and I talked to one of them. I think you were the other one, but I didn't see your call until afterwards. So I think you did okay. I just think maybe the other person butted in or something. I don't know. You have to reserve. You probably should reserve in advance. So maybe one of you didn't reserve in advance and just decided to call me. Or I'm hoping that both of you can't reserve the same time slot. And uh, if you can't get through to me, just text me using the Hangout app. You have to go to hangouts.google.com and um, actually... Yeah, if you're using that schedule right now, you have to get to know the Hangouts interface. So go to hangouts.google.com and we use that interface for chatting as well, for sending you pictures and videos and stuff. Because I will have to send you pictures and videos. And to chat, so send me a message and say, hey, are you here? And then I can talk. I don't know what happened tonight, but you can reschedule for another night if that's convenient. But you probably, I think you did everything fine. It was just someone else was either you butted in or they butted in so whoever butted in should have booked in advance and respected the fact that it was booked 
I did notice a, a change on the schedule it, where it used to actually have an individual's name and now it just says taken. Well, so I've got a bone to pick with that as well, but that's only on mobile. Apparently, if you go there on on the computer, it doesn't say taken. Yeah, it actually shows the names. So, okay, here's the thing. Oh, Sunday, wait. Oh, Sunday is free, so nobody's on Sunday evening. No, I'm looking at it on PC and it just says taken. So I'm wondering if there's a little confusion between who has actually reserved the spot. How big is your monitor? Um, I mean, it's a big I monitor. See. Do you have, this, oh, do you have okay, the window actually, at full? You know what? I, I did have the screen minimized. Yeah. I'm sorry. Once it's opened up, no, it does show No, they, they've, they've made sorry a mistake. This is, this is something that has to be changed. They're, they're going based on, they're changing the CSS, I think, or they're changing something based on screen width. And that's why on a mobile, you never, no matter what I do, I can't get to see all these names on mobile, which is unacceptable to me. I've, I've complained about it. I'm not really criticizing, but um, we can't have that. I have to be able to see which names are booked. Taken doesn't do it for me, so... I mean, honestly, I think it should maybe wrap or something. You know. Anyway, we'll, we'll worry about that later. Let's get back to our questions. Sorry, it'll take me just one moment to get back to the questions. Glennis has a question that we already kind of talked about, but I, she's asking something about it. Apologize, my internet seems really slow tonight. Um, Bhante, yesterday when I was listening to someone, and they were not making any sense at all, I was feeling really upset because my thoughts were that he was an idiot, and I felt bad about thinking that. I've been studying and now understand that I had defilements of contempt and conceit. These are common defilements for me. How do I deal with them? Just noting contempt and conceit? Can you define defilements a little? I mean, what you're saying is how do I get rid of them, and you can't get rid of them. You have to see them again and again and again and eventually you'll get tired of them. Your mind will start to see. You're already starting to see how they're a problem, but it takes a lot more than that. Absolutely, you just have to keep practicing. In fact, as you start to see clearly, you, you, you lose any desire to get upset about things. You see how, how much energy it takes and how useless it is. Because it is, you know, intellectually you can say, yeah, of course, that's useless. It doesn't do any good. It's kind of evil, kind of nasty. I don't know, whenever I hear about, uh, about uh, someone who is, is a teacher, someone who teaches and is, is not teaching very well, I always have a soft spot because teaching is tough. And, uh, and also because, you know, people who teach, well, they've got the good intention to try and help. I guess the worst is where someone teaches for ulterior motives, rather than not making any sense, you know, I mean, that can be improved upon. But uh, a person who teaches for the wrong reasons, if a person is teaching for, you know, be out of ego, because they want to be famous, because they want money, that kind of thing. Teaching is, is a support for one's own practice. It's a good thing to do, helping people. So if someone wants to help people, I mean, wanting is problematic as well, but 
I guess you could argue the person doesn't know what they're talking about. They really shouldn't be teaching. But if a person is finding themselves judging people, mm -hmm. I mean, just just to generalize it a little bit, you're you're just judging someone. They're an idiot. I mean, mm -hmm. how can you best deal with that? Well, judging is made up of lots. You can just say judging, judging, but it's made up of disliking, right? It comes from disliking. And of course, if you judge someone as good, it's liking. So there's still basic defilements. It's about breaking it up into what's really happening. What's going on in my mind at this moment? You don't have to get complicated about like contempt or conceit. You just say thinking or feeling because there will be feelings associated with it. Also, at the time, I was trying to figure out exactly what it was that I was thinking and feeling so that I could label it to acknowledge it. And for some time, I couldn't identify it. This made me panic. I realize now that I could have acknowledged the panic. Anyway, back to the situation. I was finally able to identify that I was judging. So I noted judging, judging. Oh, I wish I'd read ahead before. <laughs> and all the horrible feelings went away quite quickly. And then I was able to listen without judging. I sometimes struggle to find exactly what it is that I'm feeling and therefore find a label for it. In such cases, will it work to just say feeling, feeling, or is there something else I can do? Yeah, feeling, feelings are good. Yeah. Unless you're clear about what it is, you just say feeling, feeling. And also be aware of the, the liking or disliking nature of it, because it's usually involved with liking, disliking, or worrying, or fear. Think about the basic ones. Eventually you can you can identify those in it. But if you can't, feeling is fine. Remember, it's just about staying objective. The idea is to, to, to teach yourself how to be more objective. It's not magic. The right word doesn't do anything. The words are just reminding you, okay, this is just a feeling. So that works. I've been meditating for about one to two months, an hour a day. I have made some realizations changing my notion of reality. The only problem is the fear that arises when reflecting on those realizations. I was not recognizing reality and myself anymore due to the absence of my cravings at the time, so I stopped the mindfulness practice for some time so I could find myself. My question is, in the future, should I stop reflecting on the practice? I also gained some ability throughout, some ability throughout the practice. I know you said to let go of those, but I'm cultivating it as I consider it to be physical proof of the result of my practice. Should I let it go anyway? Thanks for your teachings from Paris. Well, if I said to let it go, why are you asking me if you should let it go? Um, well, it sounds like you're doing well. Um, but yes, fear comes from overanalyzing. You, you're living in concepts and con you're concerned about things that don't even exist, you, know, you lose reality to your fear. You, know, you start to f be afraid of something that doesn't have any basis in reality because you cling to self in this case. So when you're afraid, you should just say afraid, afraid. It doesn't help you to be afraid of that. But because we cling to ourselves. You're in France, so you must know the song uh, this song we used to sing, I remember from grade, I think it was grade 9 French. I remember singing it off-key in, in class. Pour un instant j'ai oublié mon 
j'ai oublié mon nom. Ça m'a permis enfin d'écrire ces chansons. My accent is probably pretty terrible. For, an for a moment, I forgot my name. That allowed me to write this song. Um, I hope you know that song. I'm assuming it's a, <laughs> I'm assuming it's a famous French song. I'm learning it in grade nine English, grade nine French. Uh, so there's some good French thinkers on this subject. I think European Euro Europe has a really edu really good educational system, and and I think a problem with that is people become very philosophical and start to think. In North America, I think we're a little dumber, and so we just do like buffalo. So you know, generally, Europe Europe has, uh, I think, I think has an has an edge in the philosoph philosophy department, but it can be problematic because you get caught up in things like this, worrying about the self and I, my identity, who I am. And it's all rubbish. Educated people often have a harder time meditating, unfortunately. Is it possible to make note of things concurrently? No. It's not even possible to know things concurrently. How would you? How the heck would you note two things at the same time? How could that be possible? Things must just happen really fast, but it, it must just feel like you're you're noting two things at the same time. Like, if you go outside and it's cold and raining, you're going to note cold and wet at the same time, or at least it feels at like the, the same, same time. time? Well, it, wouldn't wouldn't yeah, you need I mean, two of you to note two things? At, how how could you possibly <laughs> note two things at the same time? I mean, it's just this kind of idea. I've heard this before. The idea that you could know two things at once. What what would that be like? You know. I mean, I, I understand how it feels like things are happening at the same time, but think about it. I mean, what would it mean if you were in two places at once? What would you be? I mean, there would be, be no you. Of course, there is no you, but there is in that sense. You know, there's not two... I don't know. baffles me. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems really weird to think Thank about. You. To think that your mind can switch back and forth between well, two thoughts back and so forth, quickly sure, is, that's, is amazing. Sure, but I mean, to think that you—that's that's categorically different from thinking that you're in two places at once, on two objects. But it happens so quickly; it feels like, you yeah. know, this is the same. It's but but it, but my point is, it's that's easy to understand. Uh, it's impossible for me to understand that you could be in two places at once, like literally at once is. Is categorically different, but yeah, no, that's not what you're saying. But it's kind of what that person was asking. You have said that meditating on death is a good way to combat a lack of motivation and laziness. How do you properly meditate on death? Thank you. Uh, you you remind yourself life is uncertain, death is certain. You'd actually repeat that as a mantra. You should read the Visuddhimagga section on it. But in our opening ceremony, we, we actually repeat these things. Adduvang me jivitang duvang maranang. 
jiwitang aniatang maranang niatang jiwitang me there's more poly to it yeah, I don't think we do the antuang me jiwitang I think that's all we do in the poly we've shortened it down but then we've repeated in Thai because that's more important so that people know what they're saying Life is unsure, death is sure. Uh, life is uncertain, death is most certain because our life has death as its end. So you'd actually say to yourself, and 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 life is unstable un unsure death is sure duwang marana duwang marana death is sure hi bante didn't the buddha teach vipassana and samatha as a practice yoked together why discourage samatha if it's something the buddha taught thanks for all your work He taught that people can practice samatha and vipassana together. They can practice vipassana first and then samatha after. They can practice samatha first and then vipassana. Um, the problem is the commentaries went and, and made things a little bit more cut and dried than perhaps they were. Not, it's, I mean, it's not really a criticism, but it's, people do criticize the commentaries for doing this. I actually think it's a great thing that they've done but you have to take it in context and have to understand that it's it's just one way of explaining things so when we talk about samatha from a commentarial point of view we mean a specific practice based on a concept why because those types of practices can only lead to samatha so you might call them pure samatha meditation or limited practice that is limited to samatha, samatha only meditation, pure samatha. Um, but that being said, any type of quality meditation is going to require some concentration. And that's what Ajahn Chah was on about, and people kind of misunderstand what he said, I think. You need to focus the mind in order to see clearly. Right? Samadhi has to precede banya. It's just that there are types of samadhi that don't lead to panya. So we don't discourage those practices, but we, we, we relegate them to the limited role that they deserve. You know, it's, not, it's not worth your time, to s unless you've got lots of time, to, to train yourself in pure samatha meditation. You should work on a meditation like Satipatthana. In the Buddha's time, he knew so much more about people's minds than we do, so he was able to give people metta meditation, loving-kindness meditation, say, you know, practice that, because he knew that that's what was going to make that person understand. You know? So he could take shortcuts that way by finding exactly what they needed. For us, we don't have that, absolutely. There, there are... It would really surprise me if there was anyone, even, you know, the Buddha had these specific, these specific abilities, 
And people misunderstand that teachers have those abilities to tell what a student needs. It's incredibly limited because you can see at the moment what the person needs. That's pretty easy. But to look deep into their mind, I mean, think about how layered your meditation practice is, how it changes from day to day, and then from week to week, and then from month to month, and then from year to year, how it changes. The Buddha even could know from life to life what one's meditation was going to be, you know, the direction they were headed. So he was able to give you know, very direct teachings. And so he could use samatha. And also people back then had a lot more time. We're talking about monks off in the forest. If you're a monk off in the forest, well, you've got more time. So it's more reasonable to think that you're practicing these you know, mindfulness of death as a, as, a, as a basic practice or mindfulness of, or metta meditation or that kind of thing as a basic practice. It gives you good qualities of mind. But for those who have short time and given that we don't really know what we need the best is to take the safe route and do what we know is core to all meditators and that's the practice of satipatthana which leads to vipassana which leads to insight now there's samatha involved there to the extent that one's mind is tranquilized that's what samatha means so it's a complicated subject and please don't think that I'm discouraging samatha I'm, you know, kind of dismissing pure samatha meditation to some extent because I don't think it nearly as as profound or useful as people think it is. It's great, good, useful, just not as important as people seem to think. It's a lot easier, a lot more fun, a lot more pleasant. So it, that's the other thing is people get hooked on it, caught up in it, obsessed with it. They kind of have to shut it shut people down shut people's enthusiasm for it down because they get over enthusiastic about it and they're not at all enthusiastic about the grueling work that is what, what we call vipassana meditation which is meditation that actually allows you to see clearly because it's focused on reality sometimes i worry that my mind will suddenly change and no longer be interested in meditation is this worry partly because of contemplating anatta? Well, this worry is because of delusion. It's, a, it's actually an anger-based mind. Worry is a fear. It's anger-based. It's an aversion. Aversion to something happening. It's based on delusion. It's because you're deluded and ignorant. We all are. This is why we come to meditate. So that worry is a problem for you. That worry causes you suffering and stress. It would be good if you were to meditate on it. And that's all. When, You're when all caught up, aren't they? I wouldn't go further with that. I'm worried. Worrying, worrying. Okay, let's go look at YouTube, see what the comments are like there. Do we have any drunks tonight? I can't imagine, like, I haven't drank alcohol in, what, 17 years, but it baffles my mind that people go on the internet to drink alcohol, which is maybe, you know, I should be tolerant, but it's kind of depressing to think you go on the internet, drink, you drink alcohol and go on the internet. See, I was... 
I was drinking alcohol before the internet became a very basic activity for people, so it's just not what we did with alcohol. And then to come on and come and listen to a monk teach the Dhamma while you're drunk. Mm. But maybe it's good that they landed here. I mean, you know, maybe. Well, they're drunk. No. Well, maybe. Well. Maybe it's good that they landed here just to, to mm. hear a message that'll make them less inclined to be drunk next time. Sure. That's very magnanimous of you. You're probably right. Hey, we got some of our people in the YouTube chat helping direct people. Well, that's nice. 53 viewers. I think we're I think that's like that's not a, if not a record that's like getting up to our maximum not that it matters 50 is already way too many not way too many but it's already you know, more than we can accommodate I suppose not I mean lots of people can listen but it's great as we, we still have questions every night that's a sign of being useful. Anyway, that's over an hour, so that's all for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Robin, for your help. I've taken you off. I took you off the. Uh, I took your name off the. The intro graphic, because I thought you weren't coming tonight. That's okay. I don't need my name on there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was kind of ambivalent about it. I mean, it's not like I want star billing or anything but it's kind of weird to have weird because you're not really a teacher I guess was, would be the point if there were, if there were no. another teacher here then then we would that's no offense but you haven't really trained as a no. teacher so. not at all just helping out still I don't mind putting your name there but maybe better I don't because sometimes you're not here and maybe sometimes someone else will come on true yeah no I don't need my name Okay. Anyway, have a good night. Thank you, Pang Pang. Good night.